The following is a Logan Agency production. Today's show is brought to you by WarbyParker.com. Get a free five-day home trial at www.warbyparkertrial.com forward slash Logan. Five pairs, five days, 100% free. the second episode of the first run of PNW Pod. Of course, me, your host, AJ Logan. This time, not high on NyQuil, not feeling like shit, and uh, it should be a a good conversation. We have Jennifer Douglas joining us from Douglas Law Firm in Lewiston, Idaho. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. Since I came to Lewiston a matter of months ago, honestly, I gotta say I've dealt with a lot of business owners, and by far, you would be the only person that I've met since I've been here that I would want to have on a podcast. I guess uh, maybe it's all the jokes on the side. (laughs) (laughs) Or having a sense of humor at all, possibly. Could be. I don't know that a lot of business owners, you know, right now during COVID are at their best with their, with their sense of humor. It's, it's definitely hard on them. So that might be part of it. Especially with a community like ours in which we live in, which borders two states. I'm assuming you probably saw the, the news today, but with Washington going back pretty much to a code red, um, things are tying up across the board. And then with Idaho going back to stage two. Yeah, my phone's been nonstop uh, ever since. I represent businesses in Washington and Idaho. Um, So it definitely has to hit restaurants, hotels, gyms, etc. It's rough. So with that being said, before we get into the the nitty gritty, maybe the outline that I sent you, talk to me a little bit about what goes into being licensed in multiple states because you have different things to take into consideration. Like how big is your workload when it comes time to, I don't know if there's like a renewal process or how that goes or the initial bar process of being licensed in both states to the every person that doesn't know anything about the law and being a lawyer, anything like that. Well, if you know someone who is a nurse or a physician, um, it's a little bit like sitting for boards. So after law school, of course, you hear the horror stories of uh, recent graduates sitting for the bar and then if you license into one state, let's say you take the, the bar exam for one state, and I took uh, Idaho's bar exam, which had a pretty low passage rate at the time I took it. It was pretty bad. Um, so I was extremely relieved to pass the first time instead of just you know feeling like it was going to be a trial run because it wasn't a given. And then after usually three to five years of practice in state one, you can apply to be licensed in state too. So you have to go through fingerprinting, background check, you have to answer a a long series of invasive questions, and then you get sworn in to the second state. Once you're licensed in those states, of course, you have to learn, whatever your practice areas are, you have to learn two sets of procedural rules, uh, two types of forms, two types, uh, you know, there's going to be differences in the law. Sometimes they're significant. Um, but if, you know, if, if you are an attorney on, on the border, there's lots of times where you really do need to understand what's, 
you know, what's relevant or important in two states. I represent some businesses and some nonprofits who have employees in two states. It's a hassle, but it's important if you live on a border town. My practice actually spans from Grangeville to recently I've taken some cases in Spokane. So I do have a wide uh, geographic area depending on the type of cases uh, that I'm taking. Guardianships, family law, and probate across the board in a wide geographic area, but almost all of my businesses that I currently represent are in the Lewis Clark area. For people that don't know, you have a lot of areas in the prairie, farm country, Grangeville, stuff like that. And then as you head north into the booing metropolis that is Lewiston and Clarkston or the LC Valley, you have a culture change as far as people are concerned. How do you best manage the different types of people that you deal with? Because that's something coming from Southern California when I came up here that was really a culture change for me. Yeah. Growing up, I was an army brat, so I've lived in northern and southern California, southern Texas, Denver, Colorado, the middle of the Ozarks in Missouri, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, farming country, Spokane, Walla Walla, Salem, Oregon. So I'm, I'm used to having conversations with people of different backgrounds and different persuasions. And of course, you know, just practicing in the LC Valley for the last 15 years, my first ever family law client was Russian and had moved to the LC Valley and was in a violent uh, relationship and needed to get out. And it was just on the cusp of needing a translator, but we made it. So I think depending on what you're doing, you can expect to come into contact with people of all walks of life. and. A lot of it is just understanding where they're coming from um, and translating to them, however that needs to be done, what the requirements are. Here's what it takes to get a protection order. Here's what it takes to form a new business. You know, in the end, regardless of who you're having the conversation with, you are creating something new or you're solving a problem they have. Country folk to city folk, if you had a preference, like let's just say you were able to basically pick one type of client over the other. I don't know, it might be the PBR type of question, but... um... (laughs) (laughs) Politically, I'm all over the map and I, you know, I I love talking to the, the old conservative farmer as much as the sort of newly transplanted a female business owner that's super liberal. Here's the thing, regardless of what someone's background is or uh, what their political persuasion is or their religion or, or whatever you know factors you want to add to that list, when you meet someone, you either hit it off or you don't, right? Correct. So um, do I hit it off with people? Uh, for example, when a client comes in, do I feel like this person's being honest with me? Now, there's jokes all the time about lawyers who lie, but one of the th- first things lawyers are looking for when someone walks into their office is, is this person lying to me? Uh, we don't, in my opinion, we don't, we don't have the luxury of lying to the court, for example, that will get you disbarred. We don't enjoy finding out if our client lied to us after the fact, which doesn't actually happen as often as you think. But part of that is because I screen clients. Do I feel like someone's being honest with me? Do I feel like... Uh, when I'm giving advice, someone is able to listen to it. 
if they're honest, if they're able to listen to what I'm trying to convey to them about what is needed. If they seem like they're going to take advice and they really need the services I'm offering, then we're probably going to have a great attorney-client relationship. Um, if they don't really need what I do, for example, if they come to me about a real estate transaction, sometimes I'll look at it and I'll say, you don't need a lawyer, you need a realtor. It'll cost you way less. That's where you should go. Um, but sometimes they do need a lawyer, in which case I make sure to try to tell them, here's how much this is likely to cost you. Here's the steps we're going to have to go through. Here's the potential hangups. That sort of conversation. Yeah, I actually don't have a preference. And if I did, I'd tell you. <laughs> I'm pretty blunt. <laughs> and that's uh, definitely one thing that um, I appreciate going through people I know that either own their own business or are professionals. And I'm like screening through for people that A, are either going to bullshit me and and give me this um this elevator speech or just people that are gonna speak to what they do and make a good listen for people don't want to risk um alienating potential customers that's why they're more careful about what they say i think a lot of my clients come in because they know i'm going to shoot straight they know i'm going to be able to face conflicts i'm not afraid of conflict they know that i'm probably going to be able to talk most of the time there are exceptions. Most of the time, I'm going to be able to talk to them about the situation in a way that it doesn't make me sound like a lawyer. And make it make sense in the best possible way for them. Right. And if I'm too direct about it, fortunately, you know, I have my paralegal, Erin Bly, there to, to play good cop. <laughs> <laughs> she does that really well. She's super sweet. My clients love having conversations with her. She gets a lot of the, the groundwork done. And occasionally, she'll tell me to, to be nicer. having employees always an experience finding the right people skill in of itself what are the skills that you would say people must have either before they come to work for you or ones that they develop rather quickly after being hired i feel like my my paralegal and i are a really great fit so when i saw your question there i thought a little bit about why is that uh i think one reason is you have to look at chemistry and synergy do you do you hit it off well with the person you, you hire. And it can't be you hit it off because, you know, you've, you've just met and, and of course, you, don't, you obviously need uh, a solid resume or solid background, solid skill set, et cetera, to back that up. Um, nonetheless, uh, lawyers and paralegals tend to spend a lot of time together. So you have to be able to deal well with each other's personality understand each other, take the time to understand each other. As far as the things that are most important to me, uh, it is work ethic, uh, the ability to um, jump from task to task to task and and keep things flowing. Because when we get behind, um, that's frustrating to everyone, including the client. Um, We are also very busy. And I thought, For example, I thought COVID would make us slow down, and we've only gotten busier. So the work ethic's important. Another really important thing to me personally is um, if I hire somebody and their experience is is in, you know, area one through two, but I want them to learn three through five, the willingness to change, the willingness to change and the willingness to learn new areas and take it on requires some degree of self-confidence, you know, learning curves are painful, 
so that's important. Um, sense of humor, uh, ability to interface with the public, and one of the big ones is uh, keeping me organized. I like to buckle down and really go deep into the task of what I'm writing or what the best strategy is or what the most cost-efficient approach is to for the client. And having someone who keeps me organized, you know, has the checklists and the flowcharts and the calendaring uh, handled so that we can both see it on Outlook, for example, uh, that's really important to me. So I always have been uh, curious about this. Um, and now speaking with a lawyer in this platform, I'm just curious, what is the more preferred term? Attorney or lawyer? Does it matter? Or is there one that maybe pisses you off more than the other? Um, your thoughts on that? Well, I, I've noticed a lot of other people have opinions about this. But, you know, considering lawyers are like the last safe group, PC world and making jokes about that involve them getting killed. Um, I, I don't really think it matters. Um, and I've been with different different law firms or different organizations where sometimes it's lawyers, sometimes it's attorney, attorney at law, legal counsel, and everyone there kind of had strong opinions on it. And I honestly don't care. I, in fact, I'd have to go look at my business card right now to tell you which one is on there. <laughs> it's legal counsel, but I'm not positive. <laughs> yeah. I just figure people are going to judge you right out the gate regardless. You know, I've, I've had people ask me if I have a soul. I've had people ask me if um, how it feels to be, you know, the devil's advocate. <gasps> like the literal devil. I'm a pretty religious person who asked me that question. <laughs> um, what else have people said to me? Uh, lawyer, oh, I get tagged on lawyer jokes on Facebook. And, it, you know, it used to be a little bit upsetting or a little bit eye-rolling, but, you know, it is a little bit hilarious when you get accepted into law school, everyone congratulates you and thinks you're, you're wonderful. And then the second you're practicing, you know, it's a it's a flip. They flip the switch, and now you must be an evil person who, you know, it's difficult to win an argument with. <laughs> Just plan on it. <laughs> hey, I commend you because I've seen plenty of law shows growing up, plenty of movies about the law. When I was at a prosecutor's office, and then later on when I was doing a little bit of criminal defense, which is absolutely not my area of practice. I'm civil only. Businesses representing municipalities family, probate, guardianship, estate planning, that sort of thing. That's my chunk of practice areas. You watch TV shows and it's really, you want to scratch your eyes out a little bit if if you care. I'm not saying you have to care, but if you do care and you're watching how someone, you know, runs their mouth when they're talking to the jury in ways that would be objectionable and result in a mistrial, it's, it's hard to uh, ignore. Also, TV shows, of course, have, everything's very glamorous and Hence, and, and the truth is, in, in most real trials, you're hoping jurors aren't nodding off and they're very bored lawyers waiting for someone else's argument to finish so that they can begin their case. <laughs> most of us are solving everyday problems for everyday people. And we only end up in court if we can't solve it without being in court. If we're in court solving it, we're going through lots of information and 
nuances and stuff that's going to be boring to a lot of people. There's exceptions. Sometimes it's fascinating, but not necessarily. So you're telling me that Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, that that wouldn't happen in a normal courtroom <laughs> setting. No, but it is at least one of the more entertaining movie scenes we've seen of a lawyer. <laughs> but, and, and I realize a lot of people in highly contentious domestic cases feel like absolutely that lawyer is an evil person because he is telling my ex's side of the story. So, of course, they're lying. <laughs> but, you know, it can be difficult for lawyers dealing with highly contentious domestic cases especially to figure out who's who's telling the truth or if anyone is it's not people's best time in life when you're going through a divorce or you're in a custody battle you're very you're a scared person it is the absolute worst time of your life you're probably going to engage in some of your worst behaviors um you're not always going to look like a good person to the court. There's usually some place where there's opportunity for both sides to sling some mud if they really believe it's going to help their case, which is also debatable. <laughs> um, right. But the Jim Carrey liar, liar thing is I love watching Jim Carrey. I actually have introduced my kids to Jim Carrey. They, they recently watched Pet Detective in the Mask. <laughs> and decided they're old enough. And he is such a genius, but yeah, no, it's not like that. <laughs> so if it is, if it is, then the judge needs to get control of the process. <laughs> you know, look, guys, I appreciate that you'd like to sit there and talk about who cheated on who, but we're only going to talk about how we split this property 50, 50. <laughs> that happens all the time. I'm in court and a judge, you know, I'm, I'm watching the mud slinging start and the judge just says, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. How about you talk about this? Which is, you know, the pinnacle of wisdom in family law, if you ask me. <laughs> so, if there were TV shows or movies that actually paint the picture as close to reality as possible, what would you say some of those are that maybe for the average person to watch and say, huh, that may be somewhat close to what the experience might be in real life? And I hear from some prosecutors and defense attorneys that law and order is closer than a lot of shows or movies they've seen regarding how trials go. And when I watch law and order, except for maybe some closing arguments and some extra insertions for drama, I don't want to claw my eyes out. <laughs> so law and order might be it. I'm not the best person to comment on that. <laughs> So you've never found yourself making the, the sound at the end of a, a solid statement or a solid argument? You never find yourself going, uh, dun, dun. Once in a while. <laughs> once in a while. But I actually, you know, years ago, I really did enjoy the show. And it was one of the few shows I could watch uh, where I just, you know, got bored or disinterested or it just felt too much like work. If you're working 50 hours a week, you want to be able to check out with something else not law related I don't go home and listen to like murder mystery podcasts I'll tell you that <laughs> so on that note um, being an attorney was that always the path um, what did you see for yourself growing up well my I had a music scholarship and I was a music major going to college and I always thought 
you know, my parents really pushed that. Um, and by the time I graduated from undergrad, I just figured out what allowed me to do the most humanities, which turned out to be an elementary ed degree. And so I actually taught middle school and junior high for four years, and I really loved it. And I honestly didn't know until a year before I went to law school that I was going to do that. Uh, I always said I wouldn't teach and I wouldn't be a lawyer, and I did both before 30. So uh, obviously my self-projection skills uh, are super low. And uh, I'd have to say I, I avoid words like always and never now. Um, but I think, you know, before I talked to someone who was actually in law school and told me that I would love it, which was true, um, I always pictured lawyers as sort of stodgy paper pushers, you know, with no sense of humor um, and, and workaholics prone to substance abuse. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's how I pictured them. I didn't really... I really didn't realize um, how much analysis and problem solving and and just helping people through you know difficult situations how much humanity was involved I didn't know um, and I think law is something that you're either born like teaching it's something you're born able and sort of ready to do or not if you go to law school and you feel a little bit like you've come home or if you could get into the flow when you're arguing an appeal, then that's for you, at least if you do a fairly decent job. Um, it's it's not something I, I even predicted or, or was aware that it would be something that would do well. I have a, a basic understanding of this question, but for people like me, you know, with community college educations and killing the game with business degrees and everything like that, explain uh, civil law versus criminal law, what you do versus criminal law. The explanation seems pretty self-explanatory, but I want to hear it from someone that actually knows what the hell they're talking about. Okay, so if you get a traffic ticket, that's an infraction. That's technically under the criminal umbrella. And you'll, if you end up go to, going to court on it, you will having that conversation with a prosecutor and a, and a police officer. Uh, on the other hand, let's say your college buddy gets really drunk and, and, and pees on, in the middle of the road and uh, gets arrested for it or gets cited with a misdemeanor. How'd you know? How did you know? Hunch. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's a misdemeanor, and it's in the criminal realm. Oddly enough, there are a few things that are in the criminal realm that are... Um, that flow from generally civil things. Let's say you get a misdemeanor citation because you are you are doing a, you're carrying out your business in a way that's a zoning violation. That could be an infraction or a misdemeanor. Um, you're operating something like a I don't know a heavy heavy industrial use in a residential zone or something like that. That would be an example. So while sometimes you'll see in different city ordinances, the regulations that affect city ordinances that are basically civil. You know, you need a you need this license before you have five goats in your backyard, uh, that sort of thing. Sometimes there will be criminal implications, although those are unlikely to, to come to fruition. So most of the time, if, if it's something that's recognized as a crime, uh, like speeding or indecent exposure, 
getting in a fight with your ex-girlfriend's new boyfriend. Obviously murdering somebody, white collar crime, embezzlement, all those sorts of things that can result in you going to prison or paying a certain amount of fines, then that's put through the criminal system. Occasionally there's some criminal implications for things like contempt. Let's say you're in a divorce case and you're required to give up your tax returns and you just refuse. And finally the judge, you know, after trying this, this, that, and the other, says, okay, I'm holding you in contempt. Sometimes there are criminal implications for that. But civil is everything else, you know? What laws govern how you sell collector dolls? What laws govern whether you can record someone else on a telephone call? What laws govern um, contracts, sales? Um, how do you get title to property after your your parents pass away and, and you inherited their house? That's probate. Um, real property. Oh, and basically, if it's not criminal, it's civil. So civil is this really broad range of stuff. And criminal is very specific and usually, uh, you know, very statutory. Does that help? That helps. I, is that too long? No, no. <laughs> this is this is the this is the place for um, explanation. And I was curious because there are some lines that are ultimately blurred, and I wanted to make sure that you know next time I pissed on a building, if I had to deal with a prosecutor or you know whatever the circumstances may be, I wanted to know when I needed to call you and when you would ultimately hang well, up on you me. You know, the rule, one rule in, in, that I find in politics, which is a special area of civil <laughs> that I've done a bit of, <clears throat> and in criminal, the, the number one most important rule is who's going to complain. <laughs> now, that's not written anywhere. That's not in the common law. That's not in the statute. But that's just part of reality. If you make politically unpopular moves, who's going to complain? If you get really drunk and you pee in public, who's going to complain? Um, if you don't comply with your custodial order for your child, who's going to complain? A lot of life depends on who's going to complain, especially in the law. What gets politically addressed? Whoever has the biggest, I mean, in my opinion, nationally, whoever has the biggest pocketbook and complains the loudest and, and pre-writes the legislation for you. Um, Oftentimes, that also relates to what happens at the local level, politically, and then whether cases proceed. There's many, many cases that could proceed, many disputes that could end up in litigation and don't because people decide, perhaps wisely, sometimes wisely, sometimes not wisely, that it's not worth it. And yeah, the who's going to complain rule is important. So since we're uh, stoking this fire, where do you see us uh, going as a country during this pandemic um, under a new president-elect with Biden. Um, technically, the president-elect, um, depending on whether Trump decides to uh, leave office or not, just where do you see the country going? Um, yeah, where are we headed? We all going down? Like, like what's going on in, uh, in your point of view? Well, from my point of view, I've been concerned from the very beginning about um, making the pandemic so much more painful than it needs to be for people by destroying small businesses. If, if we had a better understanding and I realized the data is conflicting and it's, it's still being boiled down, <laughs> 
exactly what type of masking, how much, what type of social, what level of social distancing do we need? Is the problem really gyms and restaurants or is it, you know, family gatherings? Is it all of the above? Um, I, I'm not a scientist. So uh, my concern though, just from being someone who does represent a lot of small businesses has been, you know, to what degree are we adding suicide, homelessness, mental health issues, overdoses, other substance abuse issues, and other public health, safety, well-being issues because people are now, we have so many people who are out of jobs because so many small businesses are crashing. Um, and to the degree those small businesses are failing because of governmental intervention um, or the pandemics itself or both, when are we going to come back or how? So I'm also not an economist, but I will be surprised if we see serious momentum on recovery before the end of 2021. And that assumes we have some sort of comprehensive plan that, you know, the majority of states can sign on to. That assumes that it's not too late for the this new administration to do something. I mean, we've got a lot of people who are infected by now. What, how effective are our interventions going to be? And how much more harm are those interventions going to cause? And to what degree are we going to look back and say, wow, the harm we did to our economy, to homelessness, to mental health, to uh, all the side effects of unemployment, to what degree did that exceed the damage of the, the virus itself? How many more people died? I don't know. I, I did see some video recently, I think, where some of the CDC was comparing like young male suicides during the pandemic to actual deaths from the pandemic. And um, I don't have the answers to that yet. I'm, I'm loath to predict, but I guess I'm, I'm just encouraging caution. Everybody is going to have to, there's gonna be a lot of failed business and, and we're going to have to rethink and retool how we do business if we're going to survive until we even have a chance to do something that we're gonna call a comeback. I don't mean to be excessively negative, I hope that, you know, for example, a vaccine coming out sometime around April on a more wide scale, if that's the way it happens. I'm hoping it makes a big difference, but I'm kind of in wait and see mode. Do you feel like the states should have banded together and there should have been some sort of federal mandate as compared to kind of letting the states freelance and do their own thing? Because it's, it's super confusing. It has got to be really confusing to people watching this. Understand that public health is um, is a state and local jurisdictional power they have. They have police powers over uh, pandemics, natural disasters. That is kind of a local government thing under our constitutional structure. However, if you look back, uh, the feds have been involved in public health issues for a very long time. That's how we ended up with a national seatbelt mandate or, you know, raising the drinking age. Um, the feds are able to tie benefits to certain requirements. And that's how they've gotten a lot of that stuff through. 
<laughs> and so uh, do I think all states could have agreed? No. I think it, early on we were guaranteed to have a 50 states of experimentation because, number one, there wasn't good data. I'm not sure there is now. I think it's still open. There's still a lot of debate. There wasn't good data, and no one knew for sure what the best approach was. And now, you know, even if experts are saying we need to do these five to ten things, that doesn't mean you're going to get everybody on board and agreeing on the best approach. Um, but what I keep in mind is that if we do get to a place where we have a, a sort of united front on this, everything we do to either accept certain losses, get this virus under control, or both, will, I believe, prevent bigger losses, ultimately, economically. And a lot of people, I think, tend to separate the, you know, the person and the human life and integrity of human life from the economy. But tell that to someone who's, you know, working minimum wage and and tips uh, as a server or a bartender (laughs) or a line cook uh, or a factory worker. usually starts at the lower to middle class or the lower to working class um, that's usually where the first impact is absolutely and in this situation that's especially true minorities um, um, low wage income earners have been extremely disproportionately affected by the economic fallout and also from what I'm reading the public health fallout Yep. And understand everything I'm saying, AJ, is just the result of reading or people sending me articles or conversations. I have had some really good conversations with, you know, local politicians, with um, infectious disease experts, um, and then other people who, you know, just send me articles and I try to keep up on it, you know, from Fox and Wall Street Journal to NPR. So, uh, that's just my opinion from what I've read. But I think there's very few people left anymore who don't have a strong opinion. <laughs> yeah. On this issue. <laughs> that just happens to be mine. <laughs> For you, the listeners of Coupled, Orby Parker is offering a free five-day home try-on to give you the opportunity to check out their glasses. Orbyparker.com provides vintage-inspired prescription eyeglasses starting at $95. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty objective to offer designer eyewear at a revolutionary price while leading the way for socially conscious businesses. To get your home try on today, go to warbyparkertrial.com forward slash Logan. Again, that's warbyparkertrial.com forward slash Logan for your free five day home try on. Greasy wheel gets the oil. Well, yeah. 
Or the squeaky, yeah. Yeah, the squeaky yeah. did I say greasy? Ah, like uh, fuck. Yeah, it's, sorry. It seems like, at least in the circles that I keep, there's a diluted view. Basically, there's the view of the people that are directly impacted, the people that are losing their jobs, people that aren't able to pay their power gas bill versus the people that ultimately say are Joe business owner that is established or whatever the case may be. There's not that big of an impact to certain corporate entities and a lot of corporate entities that are in the game of making resources that people directly need, those are the ones that are are reaping the benefits of this situation where you see Joe Smith, father of three, that ultimately supports um, that entire family of five on $50,000 a year. He's the one that's ultimately affected because now it's a situation where if he worked in a a factory or somewhere that's in close proximity to other people, he's either A, out of work due to the pandemic, um, making it where people have to socially distance, or he's in a situation where, you know, they're laid off because there's just not any orders coming in for the product that he makes. If there's just, I could speak probably stupidly until I'm blue in the face about the effects on a community such as the one that that we live in and just seeing it from seeing it from all sides is interesting seeing the impact on the average person versus you know the established business owner versus maybe the small business owner that now has to lay everyone off and now to stay in business, they're working 80 hours a week because they have to do all the work themselves. There's just so many impacts of a situation and this has been unlike any other eight, nine month span that I can remember. I don't think anyone can ultimately remember a time like this outside of somebody that, you know, is still alive that lived in the Great Depression or... I am not following this aspect as closely. I'm sure there's large corporations that are suffering their their profit and loss statement isn't looking as good as a result. So there's others that are going to do well, and that's true of every every downturn and every crisis. Um, but what is unique about this situation is how hard hit small businesses are, and how hard hit uh, wage earners are uh, by this. And when and to play the other side of the coin as a moderate. This is the type of situation where those people really feel it because we don't have the type of stimulus or unemployment that can compensate for this in most states. And we also don't have universal health care. So we don't have the type of safety nets that would make it easier on people to survive this. And it's it's suffering. Um, you know, it's no joke to say that for Christmas this year, Washingtonians are getting business failures, job losses among the most vulnerable with no offset and stimulus, a spike in suicides, homelessness in winter and a post-election lockdown that may or may not contain the spread because it may be too late because we all know the governors waited until after the election to go ahead and impose that lockdown. And we all know why. Yep. 
they wanted to win. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I would have liked to have seen, I was really thrilled with the, the concept and those who were benefited by the PPP program, I would have liked to see a whole lot less of that money go to large businesses posing as small businesses. <laughs> um, I would have liked to, I would like to see that continued, renewed, and I would like to see a stimulus for people to make it, just to even make it through the winter uh, until we can get to um, whatever our plan is going to be going forward. And I don't think we know what that is, do we? No. Nope. We don't know to what degree there will be cooperation between the states and the feds. We don't know what the side effects of the, of the or how well the vaccine if it is you know, rolled out as expected. We don't know how well that's going to do and how much, you know, how many, how many people who are opposed to vaccines will decide that this is the one they're going to get. We just don't know. And while we're in the time of we don't know, um, I would love to see greater support for our wage earners and small businesses. It's, it's rough to watch. So you're telling me that $1,200 was supposed to last the average citizen nine months, right? <laughs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> so you're telling me that $1,200 was supposed to basically help a society oh, okay, of people. Yeah. Okay, so when I say stimulus, I'm also referring to additional amounts on top of unemployment for people who are forced to stay home. In Washington right now, if I understand it correctly, the governor is shutting down certain businesses, which means a bunch of people who were starting to come back to work are going home, in addition to the people that never came back to work. And yet, even though you're required to stay home and not go out and work, in order to get a, a, a small amount of unemployment that won't cover your prior income or your bills, you still have to say that you're looking for work. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> yep. And it's, it's hilarious to me that the federal government basically thought that $1,200 for the average citizen, you know, was was going to go a long ways. I mean, the reality is this. We have a society where most people ages 18 to 34 who got that money blew it on stupid shit. There's a reason why. Yes, there is some of that. And then, and then there's also people where it literally saved them. Yep. I think it's both. Yep. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I still it, we need we need something, and we're not going to get it. We're not going to get some saving measures for the the people who are most affected by this. February or March at the earliest is what I think politically. And I view it like this: like um, you know, I came to the LC Valley like end of March from another short-term stay in a, a smaller town. Um, Good timing. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? That's, that's what happens when you work for corporate America right there. But came from a, a smaller town in eastern Washington, and I've seen the impacts of COVID from a town of, you know, 10, 15,000 versus the impacts of um, where we are at here in the LC Valley. And it, it's just interesting where... Yes, on one side of the coin, my previous job, I made a lot of money from the stupid spending of people in terms of them 
instead of worrying about essentials, paying their bills, food for their kids, et cetera, et cetera, they're buying, you know what I mean, $1,400 cell phones. But ultimately when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, if, you know, that money dries up and you're not able to ultimately make said payments on said device, what was the, the whole point of the, the stupid spending to begin with? Wouldn't, you know, buying, um, clothes for your kids or stocking up your fridge if you're that economically not solvent there's just so many better things that people could have done with that money especially with not knowing what the future was going to hold and we're still in a situation where we're still you know six feet apart from people um almost nearly an entire year after the uh the beginning of this whole thing right and keep in mind that people who are um you know spending in a way that really sticks out to us like a sore thumb that's going to be more noticeable to us than the people who are quietly using that money to pay rent or uh or stock up their fridge and it's crazy i mean you see entities like walmart their stocks shot up um (laughs) toilet paper manufacturers Skyrocketed. It's good for our local area, by the way. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, it's it's wild, you know. You you probably see them yourself, you know. People posting the the group um, memes or gifs on Facebook about basically shutting down all the corporate entities for a couple weeks and let small businesses thrive. The reality is that shit's not going to happen. No. Not only is it not going to happen, um, it, oh, there's so much we could say about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. I'm trying to think where, where I want to start. America has always been about big business. And maybe one lesson coming out of this will be that small business needs better lobby. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I can think of several industries that are typically small businesses that need better lobbying. Dining. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, if if we just acknowledge the reality that money talks in Washington, D.C., then, you know, small business really is the economic backbone of our country. Small business hires more people than big business. At least the last stats that I saw, we did. <laughs> Maybe before COVID, we did. Yeah. Um, and whether it's the tax structures or you know the regulations or something like this with the lockdown, it I get weary of seeing small business always taking the hit. Another place in town or probably nationwide um, because in my years of working in retail wireless I did work in a a couple mall locations over 10 plus years and I walked in the other day um, to meet with a client in the mall and in my almost year of being here it's the first time that I'd ever actually gone into the mall and uh, wow yeah I've I've I understand retail is down overall, but yeah, it's it's crazy to see. Well, malls, 
malls in particular nationwide are struggling. Yep. Yeah, even even if smaller retail individual shops are doing well, uh, brick and mortar malls are struggling. Uh, that reminds me, though, I have some ideas of some people that you would probably like to interview on your podcast in the future that can speak to those things, and it's pretty fascinating. I am in, yeah. If, uh, I'll, I'll send you some names. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's wild. And then the other side of that is, you know, malls depend on corporate America to survive because the average small business owner isn't going to pay for the booth rent to have a location in a mall, especially if there are footsteps in said mall. It doesn't justify paying that high a cost yeah. to have space rent. That's where you're usually used to seeing is franchises and chains. Absolutely. Yep. yep. <clears throat> um, yeah, I took the uh, the podcast down an economic wormhole there, didn't I? Uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> Way to warn me. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think there's anyone, though, who isn't interested in this topic and, and wants to discuss it. And, you know, I think if you pick apart what I said, you're going to find some things that are inaccurate um, or that you disagree with. Um, I, I think that the, the brunt of it, though, is that I hope we find a way to have a comprehensive approach in how we handle both viral transmission and start minimizing our impact on the economy because public health and the economy cannot actually be divorced from each other. It's not possible. So unless you want to put the United States of America on a universal basic income and universal health care and only tax the rich to accomplish it and we know that's not happening yeah so the alternative is we have to care for the economy people <laughs> yeah we can't even agree on you know things at a federal level let alone something like that now that we made that departure i feel like it's time for me to make a sidebar here i oh, i did there some always a sidebar Here's yeah. your sidebar so I googled legal terminology for this conversation because Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay, let's hear it. All right. So, the sidebar here, um with Douglas Law Firm, I'm curious like getting back kind of in the wheelhouse of this podcast. I know I I kind of took you on a economic downturn, if you will, right there. Um but your business, like what made you go from working for other law firms to deciding to start your own practice? Well, I had uh, quite a progression. Um, I think law firms going through transitions would be the easiest answer. I probably could have gone out on my own and been happy doing so several years before I did. Uh, But ultimately, let's see, I've worked for legal aid, worked for the prosecutor's office. I've worked as a fraternal order police attorney or, or FOP lawyer with Philosetti Law Office for a couple of years in Boise. Um, and then uh, a local firm in town that was just going through a transition and, and at the time was doing the type of work where I was doing different kinds of work. I was getting back into representing cities and so on. But ultimately, I think it's a personality thing. Um, There are some of us that work better when we have control and we can make changes quickly. And there are some of us that do better in a group. Um, I dearly love and I enjoy working in a group. Um, 
But perhaps the answer really honestly is just that I'm a control freak. <laughs> and I want, seriously, and I just, I just want to do it my way, whether it's marketing or bookkeeping or spending or saving decisions or just how I project the image of the firm. Um, so now that I have made that step and I have gone out on my own and actually merged with another law firm that um, I just ended up inheriting their work um, instead of actually bringing on additional lawyers, um, I, I just can't even imagine going back. Sometimes I'm working at midnight, but I'm not working at 8 a.m. Um, and I have flexibility, which is really great during a pandemic and your kids are in online school. It means you're doing more and you feel like you're on a fire hose all the time. Um, um, But one huge advantage I felt like being covering a a large geographic area and, and being mobile already in a way, you know, having everything paperless um, other than backup in the binder being able to go do uh, a hearing anywhere on a laptop. Uh, that's been an advantage with dealing with uh, COVID. I've been able to uh, downsize my, my brick and mortar space. And um, now that I'm doing hearings on, on Zoom, you know, in, in two states, if you're doing Zoom hearings, instead of driving every which way, it lowers the expense for the client and it allows you to jump from thing to thing to thing um, I like the flexibility that being on my own uh, affords so at some point you know I could hire an associate we'll see but for now I think that's I think it's a personality thing perhaps it's a control freak thing but also there's a huge amount of flexibility which I really like during this if we're corporate nine to five you know nobody's going to make us work on a podcast on Sunday afternoon Nope. I, if we're going back, you know, going back even like a month, a month and a half, I'm in a retail space, basically getting bitched at by old people till 6 p.m. on a Sunday. So um, mm-hmm. I'm literally having a couple PBRs in a laundry room recording my podcast and uh <laughs> able to uh live my own life and it's great it's i love it yeah i think once you do it you either love it or you hate it and it's either for you or it isn't kind of like going to law school or being a lawyer or being in marketing or or whatever it is you do in the first place and sometimes it just takes you a while to figure it out i certainly don't regret all the experiences i've gotten working in a variety of environments and I would say I'm still friends with uh, the vast majority of people that I worked with but don't work with any longer. So, no regrets. So, two more questions, then I'll let you get about your Sunday. Um, Get back to your family. I do appreciate your time, definitely, um, being on in the the origins of this this podcast and this idea. Um, Would you say that keeping contacts and not rocking the boat is key to any professional journey or would you say maintaining the right contacts and knowing when to rock the boat is more important to um any journey towards success um well it depends what you're doing i think 
if you're a lawyer, you're planning on rocking the boat. Um, people come to you while the boat is rocking. They come to you to help you solve it. Most of what we're doing as lawyers, which is problem solving, resolving disputes, uh, creating documents that address future disputes that may or may never happen. Um, we are stepping into the rocking boat like a canoe at all times. So for me, um, I think <laughs> recognizing the boat is rocking, recognizing how do we bring a calming influence and the best sort of advice um, and the best solutions when the boat is rocking. That's, that's what I would say is necessary in my profession. If you're in marketing, maybe you don't want to rock the boat. Um, and I don't have an answer for those other professions, but um, one thing about being a lawyer and owning my own firm is that uh, I feel like it does allow me to be a little bit more transparent about where I land on a variety of issues. Um, I think it actually creates some degree of comfort with the right clients because they know that uh, I'm going to tell them what I think and I'm going to give as much detail as I can about what I think needs to happen on that rocking boat. So I don't really have advice for non-lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, me working in in sales during the quote-unquote day job, um, but then doing this. I didn't really sense when I got, you know, a phone plan when you were working there and that's how I met you. I didn't never really got the sense that you were uh, rocking the boat. I'm mm. sure I said, I want this and this and this and this. It took a bunch of time. <laughs> and I, I sensed from you that you were careful not to rock the boat and that worked well. <laughs> I, I... But as you go on to different areas, for example, it appears to me that as you're doing this podcast and the discussion topics you brought up, you're definitely willing to rock the boat a little bit. Yeah. So good for you. It's all about context. Where do we do it? How do we do it? Do we do it in a way that is super rude to people? Do we get overly emotionally invested in, in conflicts of others of ourselves or ourselves? Hopefully not. You know, hopefully we bring, you know, objectivity, solutions, rationality uh, to the discussion. And I think if we care for people and we care for their businesses, it shines through. And I think the main thing with me is <clears throat> just picking picking your battles and then I just reached a point after like 10 plus years of working in retail, managing and, you know, dealing with so many different egos and so many different reports all the time. I just got to a point where I'm like, I need to do ultimately what I love to do, not what I ultimately have to do. And, you know, some things happen financially, which really poured gas on the fire that is the decision of me saying fuck this and ultimately deciding to <clears throat> strike out on my own took other opportunities that were available to me and those things have allowed me the free time to ultimately put um a little more effort towards towards my own shit and it's it's 100 percent accurate what you said in terms of being able now to rock the boat and not worrying about having to answer to four different people come Monday. Right. And that doesn't mean we never will answer for how we rock the boat, when we rock the boat, and who we do it to. 
Correct. Like, we will answer for it in some way. But um, there's also, I think if you refuse to do that, if you say, well, I'm never going to rock the boat with anyone, we're probably going to lose some authenticity. And authenticity on a personal level and a professional level that brings passion, realism, and uh, well, I think so to some degree, common sense and wisdom to our work. And do we really want to sacrifice that? I say no. Yep. <laughs> yep. There's definitely a definitely gray area there. And when it comes down to it, if you're working for corporate America for pennies on the dollar, being somebody that you hate, why not strike out on your own and be who you want to be and reap all the benefits that you might have missed out on being somebody that you didn't want to be? Yeah, there's there's potential financial growth and loss there. But there's all kinds of other growth, too, that, that comes from it. And it's funny to be talking about, you know, personal growth at the expense of financial growth during an economic downturn. Yep. But um, here's the thing about American business people. Um, they are creative. They are opportunists. I think they're going to come roaring back. It's just not going to be nearly as soon as, as I'd like. We'd like it to be February, March. And I think it's looking more like December, a year from now. But it, I'm worried it's going to be a slow crawl. But um, I think there are a lot of people, some of them, who will be forced out of their jobs and will be forced to strike out and become more creative and develop ingenuity in, in how they develop a small business. And I hope we have the type of you know governmental support and you know low interest loans and small business other type of stimulus or support that will enable them to do that. So last question before I let you go, Jennifer, if somebody's listening to this and they're sitting idly wondering ultimately if now's a good time to do their own thing or wondering when is the right time to do their own thing for someone with the prospect of ultimately um doing something that they love versus something they have to do, what advice would you give somebody regardless of what the hell's going on with the economy, the situation, just from your experiences, what would you tell to say someone sitting in your office asking you the question, um, should I ultimately? Yeah, what, what I would say is, first of all, there are some people who will do it, whether it's foolhardy or not, because they want to. And then there are other people who are more risk averse that should have done it five years ago and will only do it when they have to, right? Yep. Regardless, here are the pitfalls for people who are doing startups. Um, Not making sure your bookkeeping and your finances are separate between your business and your personal. That's that's, uh, area number one. Uh, Area number two, is do you have a business plan? Are you consulting with someone who can develop a business plan for you that can project the numbers in such a way that you believe you will end up operating at a profit instead of a loss or at least breaking even for the first you know, Q1 to Q3? When people start businesses, they need to think about formation. Are they forming an entity and what kind? Are they actually making good decisions about who any partners might be? Who's doing what? 
what what dollar value or, or stock value do we really place on this person's contribution, that person's contribution, and so on. Do we have similar ideas about what hours we're going to work and how many? <laughs> um, but in general, when people come to me because they need a divorce or they are starting a business, they, the one thing they universally say to me is, I wish I would have done it sooner. <laughs> and there's so many things where that's true. I wish I would have done it sooner. I can't believe I waited so long. But people who do wait too long are also hopefully good planners and they're being careful with their assets and their risks. And those are some things you can do. You can, you can consult a lawyer, you can consult an accountant or bookkeeper, you can consult a business planner. Uh, you can also check out like your local universities. Is there a small business incubation unit? Can, can those people help you uh, get going with a good business plan, for example? Because there are lots of ideas, make sure it can make money before you, you know, go get yourself in debt to do it. There are steps that are common to every single startup that, you know, can really help you get going in the, on the right path and, and not end up tanking. Jennifer Douglas of Douglas Law. Check out the website. It is douglaslawfirm.net. Um, Douglas with two S's, D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S, lawfirm.net. Thank you so much for your time, Jennifer, as yeah, things go on. Thanks, Hope to have you on again, and we can kind of revisit where the economy sits maybe in a, a couple months as things start to get into 2021 and news of a, a possible vaccine might be on the horizon. I'm interested to see ultimately what the holidays do with this pandemic and kind of revisit where things are at under the new administration as well. Best of luck in all your new ventures and do your best to stay healthy and we'll talk soon. What am I becoming? This was a Logan Agency production. For more, visit us at theloganagency.com.